So why did I write this book? Well, I grew up in Melbourne in a very proudly Jewish home in a very proudly Jewish community. And I, which quite unusually for someone growing up in that environment in the 1970s, I didn't have any family in the Holocaust, but I always knew about it. I can't actually pinpoint the time that I first heard about it. I think of it as almost like the wallpaper to my childhood. I think that if you grew up as I did in Jewish Melbourne in that time, you just always knew about it. And I thought I knew a lot about it, but it wasn't until my adult years, well into my adult years, that I realised that while I had heard many, many stories and many accounts, I had never truly been listening. And I only realised this in 2005 when we were on holidays in Budapest with my mother-in-law, Mary, who's sitting here today. We had a deal with her when we were in Budapest that we would go everywhere with her. She was a, she'd been born in Budapest and she would show us the sights. But every day, no matter what happened, we had to stop and have cake. Okay, We really liked the cakes there. One day, we're going to have cake, and she said, it's late in the day, can we have cake after dinner? And I said, no, that would make it dessert, we have to have cake now. So we walked on this beautiful spring day to the centre of Budapest, and we found a cake shop that I had picked out, and we stood in the window with our delicious cakes, and just beside the window of the shop was one of the main streets of Budapest, and it went down to the Danube, which was only a few metres away from where we were. As we're standing in the window, gorging on cakes on this beautiful spring day, my mother-in-law Mary looks out the window and maybe 20 metres away she spots the awning of a shop or a shop sign and she said very calmly, I think that's the bank. And I said, what bank? And she said, you know, the bank. Now she told us this story many times but until that moment I have to say I didn't truly listen. When she was nine years old, she and her mother, Terry, my husband's grandmother, were being marched down this main street beside us in the centre of Budapest. They were being marched towards the Danube and her mother, Terry, knew that if they got across the Danube, they would be taken to a brick factory and from there they would probably be taken to a concentration camp. Her mother, Terry, realised that they could not possibly cross the Danube. So as they walked down the street that we now stood beside, her mother, Terry, pretended to faint. When she did... Mary, who was then nine, saw her mother lying on the ground and screamed. And at that moment, a Hungarian soldier was taken aside and asked to shoot the two of them. I'd heard this story and it still gobsmacks me that I never truly paid attention to that moment. And I said to her, when did this happen? Where was this? Was this in the middle of the night? And this was happening in daylight in the main street of Budapest as people were going about their daily business in 1944. At the moment that the Hungarian soldier was asked to shoot them, an air raid siren went off and he ran away and so did everyone else and Mary and her mother ripped off their yellow stars that they'd been forced to wear and they ran into the building that we were now staring at, which was a bank. And from there their lives were saved. They went into hiding and they survived the war and my husband and my children are here today because of that moment. From that moment, I think that I started to pay more attention to stories and I think I learnt the importance of the lessons or the stories and how we need to ask more questions whilst we still can through my mother-in-law's aunt. So my husband's, mother, my husband's grandmother, Terry, was one of five children. Four of them, they grew up in Budapest, four of them survived the Holocaust. And after the war, two of those four moved to Australia. So my husband's grandmother and her brother and two surviving sisters remained in Budapest. 
In 2013, I travelled to Budapest for... I had a day free while I was in Europe. And I went to visit the last surviving one of those siblings, Auntie Magda, who was then 102. I spent the most wonderful day with her. She was full of life. She was raucous, as much as a Hungarian can be when you don't understand Hungarian. (laughs) She... One of her carers came along with a friend who very kindly translated her rather ribald description of what it was like to grow up in Budapest with the Gabor sisters. And I can say this now because Zsa, Zsa Gabor died, so she can't sue me. But Magda was saying in very colourful terms how her mother used to lock up all her daughters whenever Zsa, Zsa came over because you just didn't want your daughters mixing with Zsa, Zsa. So we had a wonderful day and it was lovely and raucous and wonderful But we had no common language and it didn't seem right when I couldn't speak Hungarian and she couldn't speak English and I was visiting her for a day to start to ask her what had happened to her in the war. She died in 2016, aged 105. And she'd lived an extraordinary life and she'd outlived Nazism and she'd outlived communism. But her story and her history and her, her take on how her experiences in the war had affected her long life went with her. And that was the point that I sort of realised we need to ask some more questions before it's too late. So I decided I would write a book on Australia's oldest Holocaust survivors. I decided to write a book on 18 people. All of them were going to were born in 1926 or earlier because they would have been at least 18 when the war ended and they would therefore have adult memories of the Holocaust. I would like now to tell you about those 18 people. Eleven of them are from New South Wales. The first person I'd like to tell you about is Kuba Enoch. Kuba Enoch, with his now departed father, were the only two members of their once extensive family who were still alive when the war ended. I think the nicest thing I can tell you about Kuba at this moment, apart from the fact that he has an extraordinary large family now, is that he's not here today because he's in the Gold Coast celebrating the bat mitzvah of his granddaughter and I think that is the most delightful triumph over evil. There are three people who as Conrad mentioned are not here today because they've died since I completed their chapters and I'd like to let you all know a little bit about them. Marla Sonnabend would have been a hundred in a few weeks. Marla was an absolutely beautiful person. The qualities that I saw in her, caring, kind, inquiring, were really many of the things that you would aspire to have in an ideal human being. Um, I'm incredibly sad that she died just a few weeks ago. I had her copy of the book on my desk ready to give to her. But I'm incredibly happy to say that there are members of her family here today. I'm also very happy to say that the family of Marianne Vanderputten is also here. Um, Marianne was an extraordinary woman. I think one of the things that I didn't expect to do in the book was to sip champagne with a hundred, pink champagne with a 102 year old woman, but that was the only thing that Marianne kept in her fridge. So that was pretty fantastic. She, we had some wonderful discussions, but I think the, the thing I'd like to leave you most about Marianne is that very few journalists will ever again be able to say that they were able to spend long, meaningful hours discussing life with a person born in 1914 and the implications that their life had had on them and I'm incredibly grateful that I was able to. And the third person I need to mention at this moment who's who's died, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on because his family's unable to be here today 
and I'd like people to know a little bit about him. He appears in the book as Michael Matz, but he only was known as Michael Matz for the last few years of his very long life. For most of his life, he was Moshe Matz. And I, I call him Moshe because it became apparent when I went to interview him in Newcastle that being Yiddish and Yiddishkeit, the Yiddish culture, was such an inherent part of him. But he'd lost the ability to embrace the Yiddish culture in which he'd been immersed for all his life after he survived the Holocaust and he lost his entire family. He found out many years later that one brother had survived and had moved to Israel. But for the most part, his Yiddishkeit had to remain in his heart because after the war, he met a lovely woman called called Otti, who was German. So a German and a Jew marrying immediately after the war presented them, as you can imagine, with all sorts of problems. He came to Australia and he worked at the BHP Steelworks in Newcastle where he believed that he was the only Holocaust survivor working. The thing that I would like people to know about him is that when I went to interview him, I don't believe he had ever spoken to anyone at length about his experiences. He told me that he had been too unwell to do his testimony for Steven Spielberg. He'd got really upset about it. He did write a a very small book at some point, which a few people in Newcastle read. But when I went to interview him, I could see that there was an element of therapy as I started to speak to him in his Newcastle home. He sat not looking me in the eye, but talking to to me over my shoulder. And I could see that the conversation we were having was a stream of consciousness. He didn't really show any emotion until we got onto the subject of the Yiddish language. And suddenly he jumped up and he said, do you know any Yiddish words? And I'm like, a few, I come from Melbourne. And he said, do you know any Yiddish songs? And you you always say, yes, it's just better. And I, I, I maybe knew a couple. So all of a sudden he's got a spring in his step and he goes to his cupboard and he pulls out a copy of a copy of a copy of a CD and he puts it in his old machine and the song comes on and I happen to know it and it's Tumbalalaika, which people here might know. And I have to say in many beautiful moments in writing this book, that was the most beautiful moment of all because, and I get quite emotional, at that moment Moshe smiled and was full of life and I realised that he'd, he'd, he was once again the person that he had been. And um, he, just speaking to him took me back to my to my childhood in Melbourne. He had the same accent I knew so well from the Carlisle Street. So I'm really sorry that Marla and Marianne and Moshe were unable to to see the book's production, but I'm incredibly grateful that they're all part of it. This book is called We Are Here. So I would now like to turn to the very special who are people who are here today. And they're all sitting in the front row. Firstly, I would like to introduce you to another person in the book, Lena Goldstein. Lena is, I actually, is one of the few people I knew who were in the book who I knew before I started doing the book. I met Lena when I interviewed her a few years ago for a feature in Good Weekend. And we became friends. She's one of the few people that I've ever stayed in contact with after an interview. And she started to invite me over for baking lessons. And I have to say, I can bake a bit, but I really, really, really look forward to baking lessons with Lena, not just because of the the baking knowledge she would impart, but it's always just such a pleasure to be in her company, and I'm so happy to have you in the book. Thank you so much. The other person who I'd previously interviewed was Eddie JQ. Now, Eddie is probably known to many people around here as Mr., shall we say, Mr. Sydney Jewish Museum. He's... He is an enthusiastic, long-term 
uh, speaker in every forum. It, he speaks to people in the Defence Force. He speaks to school children. He works tirelessly to ensure that not only his story is remembered, but that other people's stories are remembered. So that's how many of you may know Eddie. I know Eddie as one half of a very entertaining couple. Eddie and his wife, Floor, are both in the book. Now, Floor's unable to be here today, but I interviewed them jointly, and I have to say that the discussions that we had about life and about the war were amazing. But what I also take away were the just fabulous discussions we had about everything afterwards from Donald Trump to same-sex marriage, which we didn't necessarily agree on, but they were such rich, wonderful conversations, and I'm very grateful for the times that we've spent together. The other person who's here is Shmulek Moses. Now, Shmulek, I think it's fair to say, was a rather reluctant interviewee at times. He, we had some extraordinarily intellectual conversations. His brain is enormous. And I felt at times that Shmulek maybe thought that his story was not as, it was not as significant as others. I think he said at one point in the book that people said to him, oh, you're in a slave labor camp. That was, that was like being in the scouts. Shmuley's experiences and his ability to talk about them and their implications are just magnificent and I'm so happy that you are here today. The other person who I want to talk about next is Sam Gelber. Now, I can tell you many things about Sam. I can talk about his how sociable he is, how warm he is, the smile on his face right now. But I think... I would like to leave you all with one impression of Sam, and that's this. From the age of 16, Sam has been responsible for himself. He lost his entire family to war by that age. And he has in this room today his family, including his beloved granddaughters, and I think that's just wonderful. And the other person who's sitting in the front row is Jack Green. Now, Jack Green is the very first person that I interviewed for this book, I have to tell you now, Jack, when I came to see you, I wasn't quite sure what sort of book I was writing, so you were a bit of a prototype. When I went to see you, I felt an instant rapport. So the fact that you're such a lovely man made it so much easier for me. But I remember coming out, I wasn't sure what sort of questions we'd be asking, how the conversation would go. And I remember coming out of the first and then the second interview thinking, oh, that went pretty well. And I remember thinking, if I could get a few more interviewees like Jack Green, I might yet have a book in me. So thank you, Jack, for being such a wonderful pioneer and marking the way for everyone else. And the last person I'd like to introduce you to is Rena Schuldener. Rena was meant to be here today, but she rang me yesterday and said, unfortunately, she couldn't make it. Rena was the very last person that I interviewed for this book, the 18th interviewee. And... For those who haven't yet read the book, there is a lot of light and shade and joy and laughter and all sorts of emotions in this book. But I think it's fair to say that Rena's chapter is incredibly sad. She is a very warm woman, but the past still sits extremely heavily on her present. So when I finished interviewing her, I did as I had with everyone else in the book. I went and visited her with her copy of her chapter And I said to her, as I had to everyone else, Rena, this is your chapter. I'd like you to read it. I'd like to make sure you're happy with it. And I can come back tomorrow or in a few days. Or She said, no, that's not necessary. I said, I can go in and have a coffee and come back. She said, no, no, darling, just sit here now and read it to me. There were many difficult moments in the book. I travelled overseas to Poland. I 
I found myself in some difficult situations and for reasons that I can't quite put my, put my finger on except that perhaps this was the very final interview, I found that reading that chapter back aloud to Rena was one of the most gut-wrenching moments of the entire experience. And as I got to the end of her chapter, which is a very sad chapter, she sat on the couch and looked at me and she said, almost astonished that I had written it accurately, and she said, that's right, that's absolutely what happened, that's just as it was. And at that moment, she finally allowed herself a half smile. And it seemed to me that she was saying that she was satisfied, that she was content that her story and her voice had been heard and that her account of her history had been noted. So I say thank you so much, Rena, for sharing your story, your history. Thank you, Jack Green. Thank you, Sam Gelber. Thank you, Shmulik Moses. Thank you, Floor JQ, and thank you, Eddie JQ. Thank you, Lena Goldstein. Thank you, Moshe Matz. Thank you, Marianne van der Porten. Thank you, Marla Sonnebend. Thank you, Kuba Enoch. And thank you also to the beautiful people that I've interviewed, the survivors in Melbourne. Thank you, Annetta Abel, and thank you, Stephanie Heller, your twin sister. Thank you, Zygmunt Swistak. Thank you, Joseph Helen. Thank you, Mariana Schwartz. Thank you, Hella Wilk. Thank you, Philip Maisel. It has been the greatest honour telling your stories. Your lives are extraordinary, and I think I speak for everyone in this room when I say we are so grateful that you are here. wouldn't for a moment um, attempt to speak on behalf of anyone who went through the Holocaust. I wouldn't attempt to judge them. Everyone's responses are unique. Um, I think that that law that they're passed in Poland, so for those who don't know, is that your question, Peter? Was about the so for those who don't know, Poland has now passed a law which will mean you cannot refer to Polish death camps. You have to describe them as Nazi concentration camps. Um, and you may not... Um, I think it's you may not accuse Polish people of killing people during the war. I think that's correct. I might be wrong. Is that right? So I, I don't really want to get into controversy here, but I, I, there may be reasons for it. I think that as soon as you start to apply any sort of restriction on people talking about history, um, you have you you don't actually have a history is history is a, an amalgamation of multiple views. You don't always have to agree with people's views. But if you start to restrict people's uh, interpretations and the words that they use, then, you know, I, I don't think the future looks very good. I, it wasn't something I looked into. This was an, an article that I wrote 25 years ago. I think Conrad would be an expert on this. I'm not sure if he wants to talk to us. Perhaps you can approach Conrad afterwards After, yeah. and, and have a chat yeah. with him. Yeah. Any, any other goss that you want on, you know, talking to people in their 90s, very happy to talk about. <laughs> When you read the book, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think the thing that I really would like to, to stress is that many people associate the Holocaust and survive, even surviving it with death. And I wanted this to be a book about living. I wanted, and, and, and I think that when you survive something, there is life in you and you experience life in a multiplicity of ways. And, and some people I found had a, a greater capacity for others to embrace joy. Um, 
I can't tell you if that's because of their war experiences or if that's who they would have been, but absolutely. I think there are 18 people in this book and they have 18 completely different responses to life. Um, but but my my whole reason for doing this book is to is to for it to be about living. Very good question, Ron Silvers. Thank you. It was not a plant. Okay, the significant. I, actually, there's two things I might tell you about at this point. There are two things that are very significant in the book. The first, the question was, is there a significance about there being 18 people? There is absolutely a significance. For those who don't know, in Jewish tradition, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value. So in Hebrew, the word for life is high. Its numerical value is 18. And so in Jewish belief, the number 18 is, is significant of life. So there was never any question that I would do any other number but 18. And I would like to, if I could, leave you with one last, one last little snippet of information. The book, for those who haven't seen the cover, is... Has anyone got one I can hold up? It's yellow flowers, okay? There are yellow flowers on the front. And there's actually a very beautiful story behind this. The first couple, the first chapter in the book are twin sisters in Melbourne from Czechoslovakia. They were in Theresen. They were in Auschwitz. They, I found them in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's oldest surviving twins who'd been experimented on by Mengele. When I went to interview them in Melbourne, I remember saying to my husband in one of the many downloads I had to him in the book, I said, look, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying this is going to be an incredibly difficult few days interviewing these women. And I could not have been more wrong. You want life affirming? You've got to meet these two sisters. They're extraordinary. They have chased life for every single second that they could. And they, we laughed. We, I mean, there were very sad moments as well. But there was an, quite an extraordinary moment that I read in one of the testimonies of one of the sisters. And she said that when she had been a prisoner in Birkenau, um, one day the sun came out, which was quite a rare thing. And she sat on the ground. There was no grass there because I found out afterwards there was no grass because I was told because human beings can eat grass. And she sat on the dirt and there was sun on her back and one yellow dandelion appeared in the grass. And she said she had not seen colour in so long and she looked at it and thought it was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. And she thought that one day she hoped if she survived she would have a garden with yellow flowers. Last year, when she and her sister turned 93, one of her relatives said, I'd like to make you guys, you sisters, an afternoon tea. And they said, nothing much, just, just please, just the immediate family. And one of their sons sent me a photo, and there were 35 people. They have 35 direct descendants between them these days. So when I travelled to Poland for this book, I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And when I walked into Auschwitz-Birkenau, the sun was out, and there was grass on the ground. And the very first thing I saw was one of those yellow flowers on the ground. And I looked around and I thought, oh, my goodness, there's a whole lot of them. And it seemed to me that there were 35 of them. So the flowers on, on, that, on that cover are not just a symbol of living, but uh, they're sort of a little homage to the twin sisters.